As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20 minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. Today on the podcast, we spoke with Gabriel Weinberg about his guide to building sustainable and lasting traction throughout the lifetime of a business, and how you can be testing traction channels even before you launch. We also got his story behind the billboard he bought for DuckDuckGo right in Google's backyard that landed them a story in USA Today. Stay tuned. Lots of actionable advice in this one. We'd like to take a moment to thank our awesome sponsors. CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple and easy. Go to codeship.com slash rocketship to get 20% off three months. 
We'd also like to thank Envision App. Envision is by far the best prototyping and collaboration tool on the market. Go to Envision App forward slash rocket ship to get the starter plan free for 90 days. Customer.io is a modern email platform built for startups. Go to customer.io slash rocket ship to start sending emails that convert. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. We're here with Gabriel Weinberg, the CEO and founder of DuckDuckGo and the co-author of the book Traction. Gabriel, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So give us the, the quick backstory on how you got started building DuckDuckGo. Sure. So the quick backstory in me is I started doing startups right out of, right out of school in 2000 and, and did a few, one in pretty successful um, that I sold in 2006. And so really approached um, before DuckDuckGo, I had kind of an open field of, of being able to do what I really wanted to and not have a pressure about funding. Um, and so I set out to build a search engine that I really wanted myself. And I was having trouble at the time with spam and instant answers in Google. I bet I wanted way more instant answers. I found myself going to Yelp and Wikipedia a lot. And I thought if you put them above the links, you'd have a much more compelling experience. Um, and re- really set out to build that. Launched at the end of 2008 and um, have been slowly, steadily, you know, getting traction and, and growing since then. We've grown many orders of magnitude. <laughs> so at the <laughs> beginning, we had, you know, like 100 searches a month. And now we have, you know, 150 million, which is... Wow. Sounds like a lot, and it, it, every stage of that growth is like another story there. But we're still very, very small inside the search market. You know, we're probably about half a percent, so we still have a, a lot more to grow. Uh, but that's really the short story. But that's exciting at the same time. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, each each um, it's just a new challenge. Basically, every year we've grown by three three to five hundred percent, and um, through different mechanisms essentially. And so it's a, it's a great challenge of how to compete in the search engine market and then really how to grow in the search engine market. Yeah, I, that's, that's awesome. And there's definitely some behemoths in that market that you're taking on. So, um, so why did you want to take the time and write the book Traction? So this also has been a many-year uh, process. I really started working on this um, in 2009, so essentially five years. Um, and that was right about the time when I started angel investing. So okay. I've done about you know twelve angel investments, been advising way more companies than that, and seen a lot more companies than that through other mechanisms, and um, saw that myself at the time, as well as almost every one of these companies, was struggling with traction. Um, you know, just getting sustainable customer growth, and you know they. Lean startup was kind of coming out and being successful. It's really gained traction itself over the last five years. And so mm-hmm. I feel that there's pretty good product methodology of how do you go out and build a product that some customers are going to want. But there's similarly no structured framework for how to approach, you know, getting a sustainable stream of customers over time, getting traction. Um, and it just seemed like a massive hole to me and that everyone around me was struggling with it. And so I went out just out of curiosity initially to see if there was something there, some structured way to approach this problem. So when you see a young company or or maybe companies that you invest in, um, how do you approach their market and and them uh, getting traction in that market? So, you know, there are some things that vary, you know, per company, there's some things that are universally applicable. Um, 
couple of the university applicable things that I, that I put out of this is that, you know, first of all, the unfortunate scenario is a company, this is what you see it time and time again, is they spend all this time building product, even validating their product successfully, say by a startup or customer development. Um, and they, they get out to launch and then they do have a few customers that are interested in it because, you know, that they built it correctly. Um, but they have no idea of how to get the study stream of customers. And unfortunately, most people weren't in the scenario where I was, where I could sell fund for a while, and they need funding. Um, but to get funding, you need traction for the most part. Um, and so they languish because they don't have a hockey stick growth curve. They have early beta feedback that's that's useful, and they can't get funding and the product dies. Um, they have to shut down the startup. And the saddest thing about that is they actually had a good product. Mm. <laughs> um so the first like kind of universal lesson is, you know, you got to start approaching getting traction earlier. You know, I advocate and we talk about it in the book and argue a lot for spending half your time on it right from the beginning in parallel. Um, and that is really hard for founders to do. It's a little counterintuitive uh, because the draw to make the product is so high. And you're like, I don't have a product. How can I get traction? But mm. neither of those are really true. Um, you see time and time again, the startups that end up getting traction, they end up having to go through multiple like reproduct development cycles. Once they actually try to hit the market with it and, you know, and, and put up ads and all these types of things, they realize, you know, the product's not exactly right. The first few customers or customer development process told us to do X, Y, and Z, but really the messaging should be a little different and the product needs a few different features. Um, all that could have been ferreted out if you did traction in parallel. And then the other real reason to do it is because you get to find stuff that you don't uncover via the customer development things, like which niche do you focus on, which marketing channel is really going to unlock your growth, um, how are you going, how much is it going to cost? And so then on day one, when you launch the product, you can just ramp up those marketing channels, get the hockey stick growth, raise the money. Um, and then you're really, you know, starting to build a company versus the other story where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of companies just like much and die there. So what's different um, about getting or, or uh, seeking traction and then that customer development phase? Um, what, what's the, the key difference there? So the key difference really is, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Like in the one sense, you're going to customers, you're getting feedback. There's that process there, right? On the mm -hmm. traction side you're going to marketing channels. And so we identified, you know, after tons of interviews, the same 19 channels over and over again. Um, and there, 19 is actually a lot of channels. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there are things you're familiar with, like sales or, or you know, SEM, search engine ads and SEO. But then there are other things like speaking engagements um, and offline events and offline ads and even building kind of engineering uh, marketing products that are very underutilized. And what we found is like, it's very hard to predict which one is going to be successful for your company. But at the mm -hmm. same point, it's usually one channel that unlocks your growth, not a combination. Um, and so like when I started DuckDuckGo, I came in with some SEO background. So I immediately, you know, tried to get traction via SEO because that's what I knew. Mm -hmm. That was not a good decision. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and that is inherent. It, this is the kind of the second major lesson from, you know, a tip from this is that, you know, you have all these biases from your original experience about what you think may get you traction. 
but those biases are holding you back. Um, and so what we try to offer is just a very simple structured approach that starts with a brainstorming effort where you go through all 19 channels and you, you brainstorm, okay, which ones of these might be useful or which may not be useful um, for my particular startup. And that kind of forces you to get beyond your bias and take some of these channels that may unlock your growth seriously. And it's half of them you probably never even thought of. Um, and so that process after you identify the 19 kind of looks similar to like a startup. Then you, you know, figure out the high promising ones and you go out and you test them in parallel and that tests means feedback loops. And so you're getting these product feedback loops and you're getting these traction feedback loops. And what ultimately comes out of that, hopefully, is one channel that you feel is promising that can bring you a stream of customers to really move the needle, you know, for your business. I love it. It's you're you're developing it's like market development. Um, where you're 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 doing the customer development, but you're developing the market at the same time. Now, these markets don't have to be paid either, right? They, they some of them could be paid, where you could go raise money and then use it as like a gas pedal. And then it sounds like some of them are your effort, whereas speaking, um, et cetera, right? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, things that um, so another tip that we learned was that. You know, you need to focus on things that are going to move the needle for your business. Um, that seems simple, but most people don't necessarily focus on that because they don't really assess what's going to move the needle. For them. Um, and the way to figure that out is to start with a traction goal. Um, you know, what is a meaningful goal for you? And you shouldn't be picking this out of a hat. You should be picking it out of something that is going to be an inflection point for your company. Now, for a lot of businesses starting out, that is raising money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what traction do you need to raise money? And you can work backwards from that. Um, for, for me right now, it's getting to 1% of the search market. Um, okay. But once you know what that is, you can put some numbers to it and be like, okay, you know, if I'm a B2B company, I may need 10 customers to get to that point. I have enough case studies, you know, to really open up the market. If I'm a consumer app, maybe I need a million downloads. Um, given comparable funding patterns. And yeah. so you need to assess that first. Once you assess that, then you can evaluate these marketing channels on whether they can or cannot move the needle for you and what the cost may be. And you're absolutely right. Early on, if you're a company that only needs a few customers uh, to kind of get to that next inflection point, then going to speak at the right conference at the right time may be the exact thing that you need to do. And you shouldn't be spending time, you know, on ads on the internet. Um, but if your goal is slightly different, then maybe, you know, y- you do need some money to plug into that channel. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. So for the for people that are pre-product, can you give an example or two of things they could do to build traction before, let's say they just had a landing page up? What, what could they do besides speaking at conferences or going to local events to start to build up some, some buzz? Yeah, so pre-product is a great time. That's mostly the counterintuitive, most counterintuitive time. You're like, well, why am I spending time on this? Um, what you can do is, you know, it really depends on what market you're you're approaching. You know, are you entering a big market? Are you trying to establish a new market? Um, you got to start with that kind of strategy. But once you figure that out, you should be identifying, you know, what ideal customers are you going to try to sell initially? you're kind of getting out on customer development, but you might have a bunch of different customers. But when you actually go to the market, you need to pick 
which segment you're going to focus on. And so you can get that landing page, but you should take it a step further with traction development. Um, so two examples of this, you know, we profile this company in the book archives, uh, com, who eventually sold to ancestry.com for like a hundred million dollars. And before they even built the product, they had a whole series of landing pages. Um, and they ran a bunch of SEM campaigns, um, search engine marketing campaigns to do two things. One, to see how much it would cost them, you know, to acquire customers to that. But two, to figure out which actual product um, was going, you know, all these products they validated already at customer development. So people had said they wanted them, you know, it was like uh, figure out what celebrity I'm related to, um, <laughs> uh, you know, figure out who the first person, you know, came over to my immigrated to my country. Um, but they ran these things to really figure out which one was going to convert better. Um, and then they could decide, okay, I'm going to focus the first version of my product on that. Another example is Marketo, a you know marketing company that IPO'd last year. Um, they actually started their blog uh, before they, they built a product. She started speaking to content marketers who was ultimately their customer and um, really tested SEO and content marketing in their blog to see where the engagement was around all their posts. Um, and started steering their product development towards that. Um, and then also when they launched, they were they were still getting email signups this whole time through their blog. They really kept the blog content going way farther than you would do if you were just doing customer development. Um, and as a result, when they launched, they had this email list of 14,000 um, you know, marketers. Um, and they were instantly taken off right from the, right from the get-go. Interesting. Yeah, that's... Um... That's very cool. Um, so what are some of the, I guess, mistakes that you've seen um, businesses make early on that um, have caused them to essentially go under or, or not see the traction initially that, that they should have? So to reiterate, because I just think it's that important, <laughs> um, the number one mistake is really um, you know, not starting this early enough and not spending enough time on it. Um, and you know, we really try to advocate to spend half your time on this and start it right away. And it's so hard to do that that we really suggest, you know, you usually have a product calendar, you know, like you're going to put your milestones and your launch date on that. You should just do the same thing with traction, you know, figure out what that goal is and back up that goal. So you're working towards it um, on a, on a real calendar. Um, the second one is, you know, that bias that I was talking about earlier, you know, is so hard. You, you already have to learn so much in a startup. It's so hard to say, I'm going to throw out, you know, what I may already be inclined to from my previous experience. You know, I have some search engine marketing experience, so I should start there. The problem with that logic is that search engine marketing may just not be the right thing for you, the business that you started. Um, and that's really hard for people to, um, to realize, especially when, the channel that might work for them, like say it is speaking engagements or sales is, is more outside your personality. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to approach this from what's best for the business. Um, and so the second mistake would be really just letting your bias overcome that you shouldn't be working in certain marketing channels when really it may make sense to do that. One way to overcome that is to bring, you know, an advisor 
who is a little more outside your company to help you with this um, brainstorming process and try to counteract your bias there. Interesting. Um, and then a third mistake is just like not taking a systematic approach. So, you know, in, in the book, we offer this approach called bullseye where the bullseye is finding, you know, hitting the bullseye is finding that marketing channel that's going to unlock your growth. And I've already explained the brainstorming process. Then you go through this ranking process and then a testing and then finally a focusing stage. Um, you don't have to use our process, but you should use some process. Um, what you don't want to do is kind of this random walk of, I'm going to try this and try that. And that's what we normally see people do. They're like, we'll put up some ads, we'll try some blog posts, we'll post the Hacker News. You know, <laughs> that that is not a structured approach. <laughs> um, you need a much more structured approach that involves testing. Really, you should be doing things in parallel so you're not wasting a lot of time. You know, you should be quantitative in it. You know, there should be a spreadsheet at the other end of this. Um but taking some kind of structure, not taking a structured approach is, is another mistake that I commonly see. You mentioned that SEO wasn't the right, um, the right approach for you guys. Could you say something that was? Yeah. So we've got through several you know, stages of, of growth. And so each one of these really had another market challenge before. So I started with SEO. And you know, I ended up getting some users through it. I tried to rank for a new search engine. Um, but the problem with that is it took me a while. It was a distraction. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the product. And it, it ultimately tapped out at a low volume. Um, and so I almost had to immediately start looking elsewhere. The next one that really you know, unlocked our growth was um, social, really social display ads, which was mainly on Reddit at the time. Um, it was one of the first Reddit advertisers. And the reason why that was so good for us is it had two things that were directly correlated to our business. One, a really niche at that time, Reddit was a lot smaller, of people who might be interested in what we were doing and kind of giving us a shot. And two, the comments on the system. You know, we were steering towards product market fit for us, which meant getting to something that you could switch your search engine to. You know, when we launched the day one, you could not switch your search engine to us. It just was not good enough. Um, and we desperately wanted to get there, but we desperately needed good feedback to do so. And Reddit really served as help on that. So other stages of growth, after that, after that kind of topped out, you know, we went through content marketing. We went through print PR, um, TV PR, and now we're looking at business development, um, which most recently we have a deal with Apple um, to put DuckDuckGo and Safari and iOS and OSX. So if you count those, those are really you know, really six different stages of growth we've been through, all with six different marketing channels. And, you know, early on, I didn't take that structured approach, but I quickly learned that I needed to. And so each of those really came out of, you know, a brainstorming session, like the one I'm talking about, where we figured out what ideas, you know, would reasonably work for us to get the next stage of growth to really move the needle for us. Um, and, and to put a point on that, you know, right now, you know, startups love to, to, to chase that, like, New York Times write-up or, you know, some kind of mention on CNN or something like that. Our numbers are such right now that that wouldn't move the needle for our business. And that's an important distinction. Because early on, I could have gone and spoke at events, which I never did, um, which might have moved the needle and got, got some more feedback. Um, but now it wouldn't. And so you really have to be quantitative about 
what is going to move and what is not going to move kind of the core metrics of your business. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at angel list right now and I see a billboard from you guys that says Google tracks you. We don't search better at duckduckgo.com. How do you go about tracking something like that? So that, that was a great example of an experiment that came out of this process. So the experiment there, the channel there was actually, interestingly enough, not offline ads, although we've thought about that, getting billboards across the world, um, <laughs> but more uh, national print. And so the reason, um, and the, so that experiment was, let's put up a billboard. It'll make a really cool picture. That was a billboard in San Francisco, in Google's backyard that said, Google tracks you, we don't. Um, <laughs> for those of you who aren't looking at the picture. <laughs> um, and we thought that would make a very compelling uh, picture to pair with a story. And I had um, talked to a journalist at Wired, we had kind of a previous relationship with, hadn't written much about us. Um, and they agreed that was a good story. And so, you know, we put it up. It actually didn't cost that much. It was $7,000. And, you know, it, it worked. So we got a, a national print story and wired and then i leveraged that to get a usa today story uh in the in the print paper and the reason that, that how we tracked that was nothing else was going on in the site at the time <laughs> so <laughs> it was very obvious that it was related to that um and the validation there was that at the you know at, at the numbers we were at, at the time which was about a million searches a month and um, after that campaign we, it really doubled us uh to two million searches a month that a national print, you know, feature would really move the needle for us. And so that's why we ended up focusing on that channel for like the next year. Um, and so in any case, that's a really good example of um, a test that was successful and then we decided to focus on that channel um, and really build it out. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And that you often don't hear about that follow-on. Um, cause offline, you would think you have to track the offline, but you actually use offline to online to a bigger print publication, um, which is a really interesting flow, uh, that you don't often see kind of the methodology behind. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I hope you guys talk more about that in the book that that's great stuff. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, um, this blog post that you had on upside down decision-making. Um, and I was hoping you could kind of take us through the framework that you use uh, for po poising or coming to conclusions inside of your business. Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's so many decisions that come out here at a startup. Um, yeah. they're, they're so hard um, to make sometimes because a lot of it is very emotional. Um, and so I've been kind of observing what our process is and trying to hone it. And, and so this uh, post you referred to is kind of the result of that. Um, and it's essentially, you know, it sounds, it, it, it's very general in that it, it can apply to everything, but it, it's designed to kind of force you to frame a decision in a way where you can make conclusions such that if you don't do it this way, you might leave things out. And so it really starts with very similar to the traction thing, a brainstorming process where you figure out what the options are for your decision. You know, what are the possible and what are the possible scenarios that can unfold for this, from those options? So, for example, someone could come to you with a uh, business development request. Um, and you could say, okay, what can we do here? We can um, say yes. We can say no. Those are obvious answers, <laughs> options. <laughs> but you could also, you know, you could restructure the deal. You could bring in another partner. You could say no to this person but decide to do this 
pursue the strategy more generally. So if you do this kind of initial brainstorming step, you often uncover things, even in a few minutes, that you wouldn't normally uncover. And you should always bring in another person for that. Often in a company, you'll have your founder or you know, other co-founder or first employee or something. You generally shouldn't do it alone. There's plenty of actual research that shows people are very bad at brainstorming by themselves. <laughs> um, so that, that's one takeaway. So once you kind of get the scenarios and, and the options out, you want to assess, you know, how plausible they really are. Because brainstorming just says, you know, th- these are things we can do. But um, what, what's likely to happen if you do these things? And then what are the upsides and downsides um, if you do? Um, in a startup, this, this is why the framework is more general, because in a startup, you assess upside and downside risks very differently, very differently across the life of your startup and also just from compared to like big companies. You know, at the very beginning, startups are generally looking for very high upsides and sometimes don't even care about the downsides. <laughs> um, so, you know, especially kind of pre-traction, you know, you get a random business development call. If it is kind of side, not really your focus, you should almost always say no to it, right? Um, if it's like a, could be a changing you completely change your company, get your traction, you may want to entertain it, even if it's going to sink up a lot of your focus. Um, whereas, you know, other companies, you know, may evaluate the upside downside risk completely differently. And then there's some other kind of clarifying questions that I always ask at the end. Um, how reversible is this decision? Um, that means if I make something now, can I change it later? Um, what is the minimal decision I can make here? Um, which is often unclear this kind of ferrets out more options like do i have to decide at all right now um and related to that is is there any information i can gather so back to the business development case you could just make the decision and say you know what we don't need to make this decision right now let's have an initial call with that bd uh prospect figure out exactly what they want and then come back and make the decision which is which is probably the right decision in that case and so you won't, you don't waste two hours <laughs> thinking through all these scenarios when, you know, after the one initial call, it may just have been, you know, they, they were, they weren't interested in you at all. Um, and, and that's actually very important to start up because it's so easy to get into analysis paralysis and spend a lot of time, um, producing documentation to make decisions. I made this mistake over and over again in my first company, just kind of like sitting back and trying to make the best possible decision at every turn when yeah. usually you want to move a lot faster than that um, and really only focus on the ones that really have potential for upside and downside. So this whole framework is kind of designed to do that. Ferret out the upside downside risk, which is why I call it upside down. And then, you know, you decide from those risks, whether you want to focus on it or just move on. Um, one thing I, I, I kind of wanted to, to, ask you about there is in your first startup, you you kind of referred to uh, making kind of slow decisions. Um, What would you say, were you able to make the right decision slowly or were you, were you, when when your decision-making is faster, um, what gave you the better result? I was definitely not making the right decisions. (laughs) Okay. So you were sitting on it, but it it wasn't, um, you weren't even coming to the right conclusions with time often. So the problem is, is um, you know, I was making decisions without full information, which you have to do in a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't getting that feedback loop that you really should have in decision-making. 
where you're saying, okay, I'm going to wait, wait on this till I get this, that, and this piece of information, reassess the probabilities, and then maybe adjust course. I would spend a lot of time, write it all down, you know, the equivalent of writing up a three-page memo or something, <laughs> and go on a course of action, and then essentially not look back, you know? I thought yeah. I was making the right decision given all the data I had, and maybe I was given the data I have, but what I really should have done is try to get a little more data, put it back into the system, and, you know, make that feedback loop live. Um, so faster I, decisions with less impact. Faster decision with less impact and, and revisiting kind of the larger decision. Like maybe it's the case that you're making a lot of small decisions all in the same area. In that area, you need to constantly be thinking about, okay, I go in the right direction with this. Um, the, the example I first startup, you know, is an education uh, startup. And, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't understand the sales model at all um, or, or kind of the traction marketing channels in the, in the way we were talking about earlier. And I kind of just went down the path of, you know, beta testing in schools and building this kind of more monolithic product, you know, product. And neither of that was probably the right decision. Um, In in any case, (laughs) it gets too quickly. But it was wrong. It was wrong. Yeah, I think it's a really great lesson. Um, And and decisions are incredibly hard, and we have to make hundreds a day. Um, but it's good to know that you can make a decision that's wrong and you're not going to tank your company. I think that's a really important lesson for people. That gets back to this, how reversible is the decision question in this framework? Uh, usually they're reversible, you know? Yeah. Um, and and so that, that's the key. If you, if you determine that it's not reversible, then you might need to step back and say, okay, maybe anything goes a little longer. (laughs) Right. Um, But usually it's reversible. And so you should just move on. Yeah. Well, very cool. Where do we keep up with you, um, and how do we get the Traction book? So best to keep up with me on Twitter, um, at Yegg, Y-E-G-G, and Traction you can find on Amazon. It's all more about it at tractionbook.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocketship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them. Mm -hmm.